The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. You might recall just over a month ago, Ray Dalio of Bridgewater, was it a month ago? Around about that. He came out and he talked to Bloomberg from Davos, Switzerland, and mentioned that maybe investors might be feeling stupid about owning cash. Well, I can tell you they feel less stupid now because investors are piling in to an all-cash ETF, the Bloomberg Barclays one- to three-month T-bill exchange-traded fund taking in $580 million dollars just last week, among some of the top U.S. fixed income products. So is the dash for cash back on? And is the yield going to compete for capital elsewhere? I'm really pleased we can have this conversation with Kate Moore, BlackRock's chief equity strategist, and she joins us in our studio here in New York. Good morning, Kate. Good morning. So help me out. Does it compete for capital elsewhere? I don't think so. Look, maybe some of those flows are relatively impressive, but I'm also thinking back to the EPFR data that I look at in terms yeah. of fund flows year to date. In January, there was over $100 billion of net new money put into global equity funds. That's come down a little bit as there were some redemptions, but it's about, you know, almost close to $80 billion of net new money into global equity funds this year. That's phenomenal when you consider in all of 2016, a record-breaking year, there were $300 billion of money put in. It, you know, we went from a, a year last year where people were, were uh, worried about the length of the bull market, about valuations, about, you know, a myriad of, of different, you know, political and geopolitical risks to putting money back to work in equities this year. And then are now I think we're at a bit of a pause as they assess the new volatility and rate environment. Kate, are you surprised that there's still this narrative out there, a narrative which basically says the following, when the yields go higher, equities will be challenged. When some of the data doesn't really back up that narrative, but it's still out there, it still exists. Are you surprised by that? Yeah, there are a lot of narratives out there that don't are not frankly really based in, in fundamentals. Um, what I would also say is, you know, everyone is looking for historical comparisons or periods as their guide to the future. And we think that needs to inform perhaps the way you look at things, but can't be your sole dictate. Um, we are still in a very low rate environment, even if rates are moving higher. And we think that companies are very well insulated against a significant, uh, you know, higher rates because they've done such a good job, as we were just talking about, about uh, refinancing themselves. Yeah. But what we'll have to watch very closely is as companies talk about their spending and investment plans, how are they going to be financing that? Will they do it with equity? Will they do it with yeah. cash? And does that end up having an impact um, on 2019 and onwards? Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance, Jen Farrow and Tom Keen. To John's good question. It is about investment. Do you see tangible increases in corporate enthusiasm to invest in America? 
there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect, Tom, between what companies tell us they would like to do in terms of investment exactly. and what they're doing in terms of putting their money to work. And I think this is going to be a real tell me and show us kind of moment uh, over the next two quarters. Do companies use tax windfall to actually invest? Yeah. And is that investment new investment or was it stuff that just got delayed from last year because they thought there was going to be a tax cut coming? They were just waiting for it. Delayed maintenance and sustain, uh, sustainability capex. This will be on a case by case basis, Kate. Uh, right. I don't expect you to make really sweeping generalizations, but I might ask you to make just one exception right now. <laughs> um, do you want them to invest the money or would you like to just see big capital return plans throughout 2018? I want companies to make growth generative investments, not investments just to appease uh, outsiders. And I think this is what we've we've come really used to a, a corporate management sort of, um, you know, or set of behaviors over the last 10 years where companies have been conservative. They were really cautious about spending. They were cautious about hiring. They did a lot of job, the great job of controlling their costs for a long time. Yeah. If they all of a sudden throw that out the window in 2018, that would make me anxious as an equity investor. So, yes, I want them to spend. I want them to do stuff that's going to lead to better growth longer term. But I don't want it to be spending for the sake of spending. Well, let's just think about it. They are continually rewarded to introduce a buyback plan or increase the dividend. And I'm not taking a position on this and saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying, look at Barclays as an example this morning. The stock surging, not because anything terrific is in the numbers this morning. It's because Jez Staley, the CEO, has increased the dividend. One and two, he's talked about the prospect for buybacks at some point in the future. Right. Maybe. That's the stuff that the investment community wants to hear. As a CEO, you know that. How difficult is it to put that to one side and say, we're all about the future, we're all about multi-decade strategies? Well, I think we also have to remember companies haven't had that hard of a time accessing capital the last couple of years. It's true. I mean, rates have been low. You know, if you are a high quality company with a strong plan, it should have no trouble accessing the market. So if there's this meaningful shift this yeah. year, that would make me a little bit itchy. How about a big picture to, you know, not only your institutional clients, but mostly to our listeners uh, who are just worried about uh, keeping the 401k going. The great mistake of this bull market has been the rationalization of an actuarial assumption is 7%. Mm. You get into that mindset, you do certain things. The people that have one day, what, what happened yesterday with David Einhorn, John Farrell? Did, do we have those numbers? Or did Not in just front of me, but I don't think Greenlight had a great year. <clears throat> yeah, they didn't have a great year. <laughs> and, and my answer is, is the actuarial assumption has not proven correct. Do you invest now believing with more optimism in equities or do you hunker down in the land of Cape Moore towards an actuarial assumption? You know, I think this is a great question. We spend a lot of time thinking, thinking about our near-term expectations as well as our medium-term and longer-term capital markets assumptions and, and looking at the gaps between them. It's really hard, as you know, Tom, to time the market. It's really, really difficult to say, I know the perfect entry or exit point, but we feel in general that investors have been sitting on too much cash given the strength of this cycle. And this is a message we've given to you know, our institutional and individual clients yeah. and said, Look, you can't time the market. All you can do is focus on the longer term trend. And we think we're going to have less volatility, both in terms of the macro and continued corporate health. So as in not a lot of Even bad. Even with a VIX of 50, you're willing to say we're still going to have less volatility? We don't expect we're going to be at a sustained VIX 50. I mean, as we were talking oh, really? about before, two, <clears throat> 2017 was a really weird year in terms of low yeah. vol. 
We should be a little bit higher than that. It would be an even weirder year if Vol averaged John, 50 through 2018, Kate. Can, can you imagine the ratings with a sustained with a, 50 With a VIX? sustained average 50 <clears throat> VIX? Yeah, I can. I think things would go a little bit berserk. Your point about David Einhorn of, uh, of Greenlight, the underperformance, the worst since the year 2000. And one of the things that comes up is uh, this expectation that at some point value stocks are going to start outperforming growth stocks. Yeah. Are we going to see that this year, Kate? Well, we need to think about what is value. So we think we talk about value two different ways: value the investment style, and then value the factor. And you yeah. have to remember, value the factor is often sector neutralized. So you're just looking at the cheapest companies within each sector, as opposed to taking big sector <clears throat> concentrations, oftentimes with a value value the style. And so there are certainly companies that are cheaper than they have been yeah. historically. Some of them are more structurally impaired, and some of the stuff, like let's say if we're looking in Europe, that is cheaper is more domestically oriented, doesn't have the strong global growth, um, you know, tilt, uh, and perhaps deserves a lower valuation than some of the multinationals that have multiple earning streams. Were you guys long ice cream yesterday? The weather in Manhattan was so good that anybody within 42 feet of me demanded ice cream. You need a time horizon of about five minutes if you were, because it's freezing again. Yeah. We're back down into the 40s. Did, did you know that there's an ice... Do you ice, want to get there's Kate an, Moore's uh, position and open up the trading book on ice cream this morning? Do you understand yeah. the cost of ice cream? There's, it's not Howard Johnson's. It, it, it Columbus Circle, there's yeah. an ice cream place. It dents the wallet. I don't have kids like you, and I imagine it's really expensive, Tom Keane. It was gorgeous yesterday. What did we get up to? 70-something? 70. 70. Low 70s. Yeah. Kate Moore, thank you. With BlackRock, this is Bloomberg. talking with Hans Hume before about his interest in Venezuela. We thank all in Venezuela for watching, as we've heard from a number of voices uh, today. Speak to the Venezuela people and Hans Hume, as you mentioned earlier, the Venezuela elite about almost this nostalgia to get back to a Venezuela of another time. Is that possible? You know, I... <clears throat> I don't think anybody wants to go back to the Venezuela of another time. I mean, certainly in the 1970s. I mean, that was probably the dream scenario. Oil prices high, uh, education funded for any anybody in Venezuela. There a lot of people stuttering, studying internationally. And, I mean, Venezuela was the strongest economy in Latin America. Oil prices go down. You start getting social divisions. The elite was very entrenched. And Chavez took a message that really resonated with the majority of the population the problem is that Chavez was hardly an economist. I mean, if you take a look at Venezuela and compare it to Ecuador, for example, Rafael Correa came in with the same kind of message, but he actually implemented some economic policies yeah. that were was able to broaden the economy and opportunities for the majority of the population. Um, so there's been a real change in the infrastructure in Ecuador. Venezuela, it's all been ripped apart. And I think that the recovery is going to have to be something along those lines eventually where more people have access to you know, the economic power than you saw, you know, prior to the Chavez revolution. This is a, a total economic tragedy. There yep. is a, a seriously powerful story on the Bloomberg today written by our colleague Fabiola Zerpa, who basically writes that Peter Vesa Cruz, the, the national oil company, are skipping work to hunt for food. Just think about that. Skipping work to hunt for food. And the individual in the story says, I haven't eaten meat for two months. The last time I did, I spent my whole week's salary on a chicken meal. That's how tragic things are 
right now, Hans. And as you look at other situations you've been involved in in the past, and we can talk about your experience with Greece, Venezuela, is that a really, really unique situation right now versus everything else you've ever experienced? You know, it's kind of interesting because I remember in another interview um, making the point that if you're looking long-term returns, you know, investing in Venezuela, you're not expecting it to become Switzerland. You just don't want it to become Zimbabwe. Absolutely. The next day, you had the coup in Zimbabwe and Mugabe got kicked out. And now Zimbabwe is like sort of the darling at Davos. Um, Venezuela, it is a tragedy. Uh, The... You know, if you look at the amount of hunger, not just among the, you know, the oil industry workers, but across, you know, you look at deaths of, you know, babies in hospitals. I mean, the entire, you know, support network for the society has been ripped apart. Um, And I think the real tragedy is, I mean, there was the initial elite that consolidated a lot of the wealth and were taking quite a bit of offshore. But in the last 10, 15 years, the people in the current administration, the head people in the oil companies, in you know, the, the senior people in the government have probably swept, you know, between five hundred billion and a trillion dollars offshore. So, you know, what the tragedy really isn't, I mean, people there's been discussion about hunger bonds, but it's really that there's it's a kleptocracy at this point. And so much money has been swept offshore that there's nothing there, you know, to left in the country. So I, I word this question carefully because I think it's the best way of wording this. As an investor, you want to finance the economic recovery of what is right now an absolute tragedy. But as you look at the situation, what are the opportunities to do that? I mean, clearly anything you know that you look at to invest on the ground is the, the people are giving it away. Um, on the fixed income side, both PDVSA and Venezuelan sovereign bonds are trading very cheap. Uh, but I think the first step uh, is to get, you know, assuming there'll be a transition of the government at some point. Um, I mean, I think that the idea that Caracas will become Havana and will stay off outside the international community for more than Mm -hmm. five years is is far-fetched. But it is, you know, when the recovery happens, you're going to have to cooperate with the international community to to bring the stolen money back into the domestic economy. And then you'll have to start rebuilding the rule of law um, you know, and try to bring the country back to where it okay. was. Thank you for the briefing. Hans Hume, who uh, looks at distressed uh, things like Greece at a certain point, like maybe Portugal at a certain point, in this case, uh, Venezuela, he is with uh, Greylock. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We now speak with Dennis Gartman, which is always a good and beautiful thing to talk to him about rising rates, about equities, about the joy that in his newsletter he writes in the back end of it, the winning and often the losing in trades, capital risk management, always front and center. For Mr. Gartman, 
But first, a modest uproar. Let me brief you on this, folks. Uh, Mr. Gartman went all Bitcoin. He went down in flames. And there was, of course, within the volatility the last couple of weeks, different reports. And uh, we at Bloomberg wrote up the story. And, you know, I must admit, Dennis, the headline was a little acerbic saying you blew up your retirement account. Did you jump into the James River? What 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 happened with your retirement account? Uh, I, I lost a little over one percent, um, which to me is really quite disturbing. Yeah. Um, I, I, I suspect that a loss of one percent or one and a half percent or so is probably not going to cause me to lose a great good deal of sleep, nor has it blown up my retirement funds, nor shall I have to go into yeah. work uh, longer day, longer weeks and years to, to recover. I, I, I had a, <laughs> excuse me, I had a bad trade. Yeah. I got out. But the headlines that, uh, that Bloomberg had written made it look like I had, well, and, uh, had, had been debilitated, and that's simply not the case. Well, I talked to our Dave Litka, our editor, on this, and he made clear we made some tweaks to that. But the idea here, Dennis, whether you were down 1% or 5% or you got clobbered in a Bitcoin trade, in the heat of down 1,000 points, in mm-hmm. a heat yesterday of a swing of 500 points in two cups of Gartman cup of coffee, <laughs> what should people do you're in a dog trade you you said in your newsletter you were in some bitcoin riot coin thing whatever it was you're in this lousy thing what should people do when they're going down in flames on an individual trade get to the sidelines as fast as you possibly can take your loss admit admit that you had made a mistake uh, for whatever reason and, uh, and and do the best that you can. But going to the sidelines is always the best course of yeah. action. And as I've always said, there's never just one cockroach. Usually when a problem right. occurs, it is followed by others. And the stock has continued to fall since then. Within this, Dennis, is, is mm-hmm. risk management. Do stop losses work when you're going down in riot coin or whatever it was that quick. I mean, I'm sorry, John Farrell, technical analysis doesn't work when the line is no, not. Of course, co- I get it, but it, we keep referring to this as riot chain. It's, what is it's, it? it's riot blockchain. It was riot a biotech blockchain. company that went all crypto. And I want to try and understand why someone like you, Dennis Garman, exactly was anywhere near this company. Why did you hold this stock? Uh, I, I was looking at the chart. I saw something that, that was pleasing. It had an out, what I call an outside reversal two weeks prior to that. Uh, and uh, I, I understand that a couple of friends of mine from years past were becoming involved. That changed my opinion. I thought I could see a decent reward and a reasonable risk. And for a while, the trade was doing really quite well. I think I bought it at 15 and a half, 16, 16 and a half, added to a winning trade. Yeah. I think it was uh, up to 17.20 the night before, and then out came a, uh, that expose. But, Those Dennis, we're talking happen. about technicals here. Would you yeah. seriously, exclusively, 100% put a position on, buy a equity, buy a stock on technicals alone without doing any fundamental analysis of what this company's up to? It's not the first time I've done that. It won't be the last time I've yeah. done that. There are, there are a number of reasons why I did it, <clears throat> and it was a yeah. very small amount of money compared to the size of my my retirement fund. So. Yeah, clearly. I there there have been times in the past when a when a simple technical circumstance has has a lit right. has 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 caught my attention and I have acted. I'm not the only person okay. that's ever done that. I won't be the last. This is very honest discussion, folks. Dennis Gartman, what's so por- por- uh, important here is the struggle of partitioning investment from speculation. How do you partition gold hedged in euro? or a long-term long bet on the United States of America 
from the, what's it called, John, on a speculation on Riot what? Riot Blockchain. Riot, Riot blockchain. blockchain. How do you, can we change this to Bloomberg Blockchain? That would be good for the show. <laughs> we get more listeners. Dennis, how do you partition? <laughs> we would. Wait, we've only got 42 listeners now. Dennis, how do you partition investment from speculation? That's the heart of this discussion. I don't think there is a different differentiation between investment and speculation. I, I, I learned long ago when I worked at a bank as a as a foreign exchange trader and watched one of the major one of the major traders in the bank put positions on for the bank's portfolio. When they went against him, they became part of the portfolio and became an investment. When he made a quick profit, they became a speculation. All all trading, all investment begins as a speculation. And usually, what I have seen over the course of years is that people who allow a trade to go against them say that the fundamentals have not changed. Something else has changed. You're losing money. And that's what separates, I think, pros from amateurs in the business, is pros will lose money more often than amateurs will, but pros will will make so much more on the one or two or three or four trades out of the 15 that they have. And that's what's important, and that's what differentiates. Dennis Gallman. To really link in uh, science and technology in a way that, and with the great response we got yesterday from those older that remember where you stopped for space launches. And a lot of younger people are saying, well, that's odd. And I'm like, no, it's not odd. It's what we used to do and through the 60s and even well into the 70s. And of course, up to a grim day with a Challenger uh, accident of years ago. But um, we're going to do that. SpaceX scrubbed yesterday. The reports, um, our official surveillance aerospace engineer, our worst span. David, uh, worst span doesn't, when you get that much engineering, you don't use your first name. It's just surveillance aerospace expert, our worst span, tells us that downwind, it looks good today for SpaceX. How does it look for Rubbermaid? I have discovered that offspring like Rubbermaid airtight cartons to keep their slime in. So is this the slime report with Newell Rubbermaid? Well, let's just uh, focus on Newell Brands, which owns Rubbermaid, along with uh, a lot of other uh, consumer products. It's up 2.5% in early trading. Uh, The household product maker appointed two independent directors to its board and said it would nominate a third for election this year. All this change coming as activist investor Starboard Value wages a proxy fight to take over Newell's board. So change is coming. It's just a question of how it gets there and what it looks like when it's all over. Uh, you've got a couple of earnings reports out of the uh, energy business, which are being well-received. One of them from Apache. It's up 1.5%. The oil and gas producers fourth quarter earnings and sales beat analyst average estimates in the Bloomberg survey. And uh, Technip FMC, the oil services company, up 6%. Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization for the fourth quarter beat estimates. Uh, The Technic FMC also raised this year's forecast for EBITDA margin, a profitability gauge. Hormel Foods, though, down 3%. The maker of spam, canned meat, and other food items. Posted earnings and sales for the fiscal first quarter that were lower than projections. Hormel cited higher freight costs along with weakness in its Genio turkey business. Uh, you've got Wayfair, lower by 14%. What is Wayfair? I know that name, but I don't. What is Online it? seller of home furnishings. Okay, like Ikea. 
sort of. Mm, kind of, kind absolutely. Of. Uh, they had a fourth quarter loss that was wider <laughs> than estimates, even though sales beat projections. Bigger disappointment at Roku, uh, that stock down 18%. The maker <clears> of video <throat> streaming devices gave a first quarter revenue forecast of trailed estimates. Bear in mind, Roku's share price had more than tripled since the company went public in September. And then you have Macquarie Infrastructure down almost 28%. Company owns power, energy, and airport services businesses. They're cutting this year's dividend by 32% to fund investments. It's not happening. Macquarie had increased its payout every quarter for the past four years. Wow. Relatively unusual. Companies tend to only do it once a year. One more here. We've got to get to a rocket launch. I'll give you a pair. Avis Budget Group up 10.5%. The car rental company's fourth quarter earnings and revenue exceeded estimates. No, Avis cited a pickup in business worldwide and higher rates in the Americas. Interesting. And uh, rival Hertz Global Holdings is up 6% in the oh. wake of those results. <clears throat> David Wilson, thank you so much on the car rental front uh, today. This is a joy. Here's what we're going to do, folks, uh, for the next hour. We're going to spend a lot of time on technology, manufacturing, on the oddities, the true oddities of what well, harkens back to the 60s, even the 50s, but the 60s and into the 70s, which is throwing things into space. We begin our coverage now of a scrub mission yesterday. George Ferguson will join us uh, from Bloomberg with really smart discussion of the defense contractors and um, the, the, the flight industry, if you will. But we are thrilled now to bring in Gene Munster. He's with Loop Ventures. Of course, you know him for years at Piper Jeffrey. Gene, I got two Apple questions quickly here before we move over to Tesla and SpaceX and all that. Um, <clears throat> the update on Apple seems to be, first of all, the mystery of their use of cash. Have you noted a change in the executive leadership of Apple in what they feel about cash? Unfortunately, I wish I could report a change, uh, but it's the majority, call it 75% of the cash, is going to go back to shareholders in the form of a likely a much bigger share buyback. There's probably a one-time dividend that's coming, but the majority of it's going to come back. As a, somebody who's been following tech, we would love to see Apple go and make some big M&A deals and buy <clears throat> something like Tesla. That would make the most amount of sense. But even though things have changed a lot under Tim Cook, the company is much more transparent. This need for cash, this uh, near-death experience that the company had uh, yeah. almost 20 years ago hasn't changed the fundamentals of what they're going right. to do with their cash. Well, you know, I know people would say, well, they should go buy this or that. I'm not informed. I guess some would say Twitter is, well, I should point out right now, folks, we're just getting images here from the Vandenberg uh, Air Force Base in uh, California, and of course, it, at 9.06 a.m., let me work back, 8.7, 6.06 a.m. in California in the black sky of the early morning, and really an image out of the 60s with the liquid oxygen, the gaseous oxygen streaming off uh, with a very slight wind uh, to the left of the Falcon rocket in the unmanned module at the top with three satellites in it, and that's really the first image uh, we have, again, from another time and place in American science history uh gene let's rip up the script then uh why would apple buy tesla they're very good at selling six hundred dollars seven hundred dollar units called iphones and other things why would they want the headaches of moving an automobile the simple answer is that it's a massive market and big companies and apple's going to do about 270 billion in revenue this year 
one of the biggest companies in the world. They need to find massive markets to grow into. I want to emphasize, I think that an Apple-Tesla combination makes a ton of sense, but it's a fairy tale that that's ever going to happen. And the reason why you're looking at it with this, these images of uh, the Falcon launch getting ready is yeah. that Elon Musk would never sell. He's very passionate about, uh, say, uh, he has kind of four e- uh, endeavors going on in all of them, but he's most passionate yeah. about auto, and so he simply won't sell. So the answer to your question, Tom, is auto is going to be uh, just this massive upheaval we all know it's coming. When you see a, a car on the road today, think of a horse and buggy because that's going to be the, the, the difference between the cars we're driving today and the ones we're going to drive in 10 years. And Apple sees an opportunity. So they will play in this autonomous uh, transportation space with probably some sort of an autonomous shuttle, but uh, not okay. in, uh, through that position. Within your wonderful note on the future of my horse and buggy, and no, Gene, I do not remember the horse and buggy is – the manufacturing process. Apple invented a, a manufacturing process for constructing their miracle phones. Elon Musk is reinventing a manufacturing process at Tesla slash SpaceX. How do the two dovetail? Well, the, when you think about the future of manufacturing in cars, um, I think a lot of people just think about putting wheels on an axle and a chassis. But the, the real guts of this is a computer. When you talk to people at Tesla, they say they're not a car manufacturer, they're a computer on wheels manufacturer. And so uh, a computer has uh, CPUs, has computer vision, uh, Tesla, in that Tesla's case, LiDAR, but also this critical piece of the battery. And when you think about how this whole transition plays out around electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles, you, uh, speaking of tear up the script, you really need to do that in terms of how these cars are produced. And so uh, Elon Musk describes it as a manufacturing hell that they're going through with ramping the Model 3 production. Unfortunately, the other automakers, despite their 100 years of knowledge of building cars, are going to have to go through a similar path to get to the other side because the importance of battery yeah. computers and that. Interesting. Gene Munster with us. Uh, right now we're looking at the image of the SpaceX. Of course, it is a brilliant white rocket. It is not the Falcon Heavy. Some of you may have known the uh, launch of a few uh, weeks ago with three tubes is the main stage and the two side stages of the Falcon Heavy. This is not the Falcon Heavy. This is really harkening back almost to Atlas and the programs well before Mercury, almost Explorer, of 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 a very thin, I should say Jupiter, excuse me, of a very thin rocket. And on top top of it, a huge payload. The payload on top um, is 43 feet by 17 feet, which is not Apollo-like, but is certainly ginormous uh, and, and can put a lot of weight into space, which if you're in commercial uh, is what you want to do. So we're waiting there with the uh, oxygen, the feathery oxygen steaming off the gas to the left of our image of SpaceX at Vandenberg. Joining me now, Lisa Abramowitz in our studios, not to talk on bonds or uh, the dynamics of the market, but we get ready for a SpaceX uh, launch with us. Gene Munster of Loop Ventures, uh, of course, with his acute focus on Tesla 
and their manufacturing processes. And now joining us, George Ferguson from Bloomberg Intelligence, head of all of our aerospace and defense uh, coverage. George Ferguson, when I look at SpaceX and I look at tech, uh, Tesla, is this an all Elon Musk venture or are there subcontractors, the world of Lockheed Martin, are they involved in this at all? Uh, in, in Elon Musk's SpaceX, no, right? They have a, comp a competitor, United Launch Alliance, that they're in with Boeing. Uh, so they are competitive, but they're not involved in SpaceX. Is this anything to do with the defense industry, or is Elon Musk inventing this out of thin Elon Muskian air? Uh, you know, when you look at the uh, the manifest for satellites that, that are going to go up and have gone up, he's taken a fair amount of market share since he's providing lift into orbit much cheaper. He's definitely doing it for defense, uh, you know, as a defense contractor for, for the Defense Department. So he's in there as well as in the commercial business as well. When you look at the shot, folks, and uh, thanks to Gizmodo for a great photograph of the launch site, George, it's not Cape Canaveral-like. It's ensconced beautifully on the shores of the Pacific Ocean, and it's small, and there's a couple trailers and a couple buildings and some lights, and, you know, it's just sort of like a commercial venture. When will this be commercially successful, or is it, is it now? Well, I mean, I guess I would say that uh, United Launch Alliance, which is the the Boeing and Lockheed venture, is commercially viable. It's uh, it creates a profit. We we can't see profits inside SpaceX, and he's providing much cheaper lift. My sense is that he's got much less much less profitability in here, but he clearly wants to take it much further. I think the United Launch Alliance would want to take it. Yeah. The defense contractors want to take it. And he's building, actually, a spaceport down in Texas that would be entirely commercial. So, yeah. Yeah. Lisa? Well, I'm just wondering, how does Elon Musk manage to uh, have a launch so much cheaper than the Defense Department? Well, you know, and I, th I think a good portion of that is going to be about the, the reusable market. Uh, sorry, rockets. <laughs> Uh, and that's why, you know, it's key when he's sort of launching these things and bringing back the components, bringing back the boosters, uh, that he can reuse those. That, that's a big portion. You know, plus he, he really doesn't suffer from well, uh, the large <clears throat> bureaucracy that you'd have inside of Boeing and a, and a Lockheed right. Martin, right? So, well, George Ferguson with us and uh, uh, Gene Munster as well. We've seen the gantry pull back uh, from the Falcon rocket with a payload up top. Again, this is a Spanish satellite and the huge buzz of two smaller satellites, which are very much having to do with the future of Internet. It is, Lisa, a gorgeous site. It is an all-white rocket with the, I'm going to suggest, gaseous oxygen uh, drifting off into space and with the uh, gantry pulled away. We're going to bring up the audio. Ken, bring up the audio if you can on this SpaceX launch. We're about 20 uh, seconds, I'm told, away here <clears throat> from the countdown. Again, the larger fairings up top. Here is the launch of SpaceX. Twenty. Fifteen. Falcon 9 is configured for flight. Ten. Nine. Eight. Seven. Six. Five, four, three, two, one.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.